In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. What you just saw was a special rite that's done only for the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord into the Temple, where the there's a procession inside of the altar, three times around the altar, and then um, all of the deacons come up and they kiss the uh, gospel um, that the priest is holding in his hand um, because the word of the Lord which is the gospel is Christ and we are celebrating the entrance of Christ into the temple for the first time on this feast as we spoke last week um, uh, Christ spoke to the people and they were speaking to him uh, or he was speaking to them about how they were coming to him to seek uh, the miracles that he was offering them that he had after he had fed the multitude the 5,000 and he had, he had left that place. The people were looking and searching for where he was. And when they found him, they, he rebuked them. And he told them, are you coming after me because uh, you want the spiritual food that I'm offering to you? Or are you coming after me because I gave you the physical food that you filled your stomachs and you're hungry and you're coming back again? Today, when the uh, Lord Jesus as a child entered into the temple, uh, we read in Luke chapter 2, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The coming of the Lord Christ into the world turned everything upside down, that those who were in high position became in low position, and those who were in low position became in high position. And this is what it said, it says, the destined for the fall and rising. The, the order of everything was uh, you know, put on its head whenever Christ came. Those who were the poorest and yet accepted the Lord became the first in the kingdom of heaven. And those who were the first among the people, like the Pharisees that rejected Christ, they became the very last. And so we, we look at this in light of what we were speaking about last week, is who are those people who fall and rise? Last week we spoke about those who work for the food that perishes, the people who spend all of their time working for the food of this life. And yet here we speak about, and what we're going to speak about this week, is those people who work for the food that it endures to everlasting life. Those are the ones who will rise. The ones who will fall are the ones that invest and spend all of their energy, all of their money, all of their time into this world only. And then at the time when this world is destroyed, there will be nothing left. But those who, in, who invest in and who work for the food that endures to everlasting life, those are the ones that will last and endure forever. So uh, I just want to read this verse again from last week in John chapter 6. It says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And this is what we're going to speak about briefly today, is what is this food that endures to everlasting life. A quick recap of the what we spoke about last week is how do we labor for the food that perishes? We said those who labor for riches, meaning the desire to be wealthy, the desire to be rich. This is different than being rich. If God granted us this blessing of being wealthy, this is a blessing that comes from God. And he asks us to be good stewards of the money that we receive. And yet this is different than a desire for wealth. Christ said that the desire for wealth is a snare, it's a trap, and, and it, it ensnares us because it is what it is the epitome of those who labor for the food that perishes. The wealth that we have will perish. Those who spend their time laboring and laboring just for this wealth is something that will die with this world. The second way that we spoke about that we can labor for the food that perishes is those who labor for pleasure and indulgence. The third was those who labor for beauty. And the fourth was those who labor for position and power. 
The characteristic among all of these is these are temporary things. These are things that maybe get us status in the world, that bring us joy in the world, and yet we know that when this world ends, there is none of this is left. This is all going to fade away, right? And so Christ, again, he is exhorting us today. And he's saying what? Be among those who rise, not among those who fall. Those who rise, again, are the ones who work for the food that endures to everlasting life. So what is this food that endures? The first labor that we should labor in that will endure is the labor of faith. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but are the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In order for anyone to really take the Christian life seriously, in order for anyone to really be willing to sacrifice anything in this world, or, you know, we're coming up to the fasting in one week, who of us is going to be joyful in this fast? Who, is, uh, who of us is going to enjoy wanting to fast for 55 days? Unless we really see before us the Lord, unless we really see before us heaven, and we see how this fasting is, is, is allowing us to approach him, how this fasting is allowing us to see him more clearly. Without the faith, then everything that the Lord said to us is nonsense. Without, without faith, everything that we are taught in the church is nonsense. There is no reason for us to pursue the things that we pursue unless we have faith. How can we labor? How can we stress ourselves? How can we sacrifice? How can we give up the desires of the flesh if we do not have faith? And so it's important for us to seek faith. You know, it's important for us to seek faith. Oftentimes what happens is when we are young, and we are taught and grown up in the church that we that this faith is instilled in us because we have the faith of children we have the faith because the people that are around us that love us that we love are telling us about god are telling us about his commandments are telling us about heaven and so it's very easy for young children to have faith because in some sense children believe whatever they are told to believe but at some point as we grow there begins to be questions there begins to be doubts there begins to be is that really the case is it really the case that there was a man named Jonah who lived in the world and there was a large fish that swallowed him? How is it that I can accept this? Is it really the case that the Lord Christ resurrected from the dead? Is it really the case that Christ did all of these miracles? Is it really the case of all these miracles that we read about on the Old Testament? And we begin to wonder and question. Wondering and questioning in and itself is, is not wrong. Actually, this is a natural part of us growing in faith. In order for us to increase in faith, we have to question the things that we know and say, well, how do we know that this is true? But at the same time, there is uh, a type of doubting. And there is a type of doubting where we begin to attack even the things that we believe. And we begin to doubt and to depart and not even try to find an answer. You know, the person who doubts and leaves the church and leaves God is the one who after he doubts or after she doubts makes no effort to try to find the truth, makes no effort to try to determine how is it that we know and believe the things that we know and believe. What evidence is there for these things? And if someone does not pursue this information, if someone does not pr pursue this truth, then maybe they just conclude in the end that th there is no justification for the things that we do. There's no justification for the liturgy. There's no justification for why we believe that the bread and wine and the altar turns into the body and the blood. And so we need to find a remedy for this. We need to find what is it that I should do to really labor for faith? How is it that I labor? Is faith something that just comes for free? Or is it something that I have to do something to pursue it, to have it? What are some things we can do? Obviously, we can read the Word of God. The more we read the Word of God, the more this Holy Spirit works in us to confirm in us the things that 
we know, but maybe are questioning. Also, we can spend time in holy places. We can go to monasteries, we can go to churches, we can go in places that remind us of God's presence, that reminds us of the way that God has worked with his people all throughout history, even till today. We can also spend time with people that are very strong in their own faith, whether it be in, in our families, whether it be clergy or monks or nuns or whoever it might be, people that are very strong in their faith, and we ask them, why do you have the faith that you have? Tell me how is it that you believe so strongly when you speak about someone who uh, is a monk or a nun, they chose to leave their entire life completely to go and to consecrate themselves 100% to God. So they must know something. We go to them and we say, tell me what is this strong faith that you have? How is it that you were able to do this? Teach me what it is that you know. Also, we should resist sin. Oftentimes, the reason that people fall into extreme doubt and leave God is because of some kind of sin, some kind of sin that separates us from God. So we should fight against sin, try seeking to try to live a moral and good life. We should pray to God. How is it that I'm going to believe in someone whom I do not speak to? You know, if I don't speak to God on a regular basis, and then I begin to doubt whether God actually exists, then that's because I haven't been talking to him. But if I am talking to God on a regular basis, how can I doubt that he exists? If you are talking to your friend on a regular basis, will you then the next day begin to doubt that your friend exists? No, because you have a personal contact with him or her. You have a personal contact. You're always speaking to that person. So if somebody comes and tries to tell you this person doesn't exist, you don't even need evidence. You don't need like, I have a personal interaction with them. What evidence can you provide me to prove to me that they do not exist? So if we pray to God, it helps shield us in our faith. So this is the first point. How is it that we labor for the food which endures forever? We labor to increase our faith. The second thing is that we labor to increase in self-discipline. In 1 Corinthians 9, St. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. St. Paul himself, who is such a great teacher and saint, is worried about his own disqualification from heaven, unless he disciplines himself, unless he lives in a disciplined life, unless he is uh, cognizant and aware that the, the struggles of the flesh, that the temptation of the flesh is very strong against him and that he needs to live a certain way to keep these passions under control, to keep his wrong desires under control. How is it that we can grow in faith, in understanding in God without self-discipline? Maybe I can grow in understanding, maybe I can grow in knowledge and information, but to truly experience God and their spiritual life, we need to also seek to live a life of asceticism. This is why in the church we have so many fasting periods. Because it is in these fasting periods that we say, my interaction with God or my, my knowledge of God should not be limited only to what I listen to in sermons or what I read in the, in the Bible or what I hear from other people. My experience with God should be one in my spirit. And in order for me to really experience God in the spirit, I have to diminish the flesh. I have to tell my flesh for a period of time, I'm not focusing on you. I'm not giving you as much attention as I usually give to you. 
I'm, I'm, I'm putting you aside for a little while so that I can focus on the spirit. And in that time where we are focused on the spirit, our attention toward God, our ears are open to the word of God more. We have more power in us to overcome sin. We are more aware of ourselves and our surroundings. We are more aware of the heavenly things. We are more aware of the presence of God through self-discipline. Because I'm, I'm saying to God, I am giving up what is important to me. I am sacrificing something that matters to me because I want to see you more clearly, because I want to know your presence, because I want to be aware of you more keenly than I normally am. And, and this self-discipline is very important. And again, I'll say we have this great fast that is coming up. And I know sometimes people struggle with this fast more than any other fast because it is the longest and is the most ascetic and it's a completely vegan fast. But I will say this, that if we go from year to year feeling frustrated, feeling I still feel that God is distant from me, or I feel like I don't really know the word of God, or I feel like even though, yes, I believe in God, but I feel like there is some disconnect between me and God, or I don't really enjoy my prayers, or I don't really enjoy my, my time with God, then I will say this. It is possible that we are trying to do the minimum. It is possible that we are trying to do the minimum that the church has asked me to do, or even maybe less than the minimum. When we fully dedicate ourselves to the fast, when we fully dedicate ourselves to self-discipline, without shortcuts, without exceptions, with not, without like clever things that we do to try to get around having to fast or to substitute one thing for the other, if we seriously are committed to the fast, then by the end of the fast, we will see God differently than we see him at the beginning. By the end of the fast, we will see the heavenly things more clearly than we see it at the beginning. And it will be refreshing and it will be enjoyable because we see God in this way. But if we are not committed to the fast and if we are doing things um, lightheartedly and, and not very consistently and trying to find exceptions and shortcuts, then maybe we'll continue to suffer this frustration that sometimes we feel because I have not fully committed myself to it. But if I commit myself to grow in my spirit, then certainly I will see the fruit of this. The third way that we labor for the food which endures for eternal life is that we labor to be humble before God. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. What is humility? Humility is not some action that we take. Humility is not some thing that we say, some words that sound humble. Humility is being aware of the reality of who we are relative to God. The, the, sad, the sad thing about in our world, that people especially who do not believe in God, they consider themselves to be gods, in the sense that they consider themselves to be the final authority of themselves. Who is the, the one who decides for me? It's me. Who is the one who, who determines my future? It's me. Who is the one who makes any decision in my life? It's me. It's completely self-directed. Right? So essentially, I have become a god to myself. To be humble means to acknowledge that there is a true God who is the one who has authority over me. And so when he tells me what is right and what is wrong, I submit to him because he is the authority. When, when, when I look at my body and I say, this body belongs to God. He gave it to me for a time, but he is, it belongs to him. And so I submit to his authority over my body because this body belongs to him. It doesn't belong to me, right? In, by our very nature, we want to be in control of things. We want to be in control of ourselves, our circumstances, other people. To be humble is to acknowledge that we have no control. That we are in this world very helpless. 
And while there are some things that we can do ultimately, so much of this world is out of our control, and we trust that God does what it is that we cannot do. This is to be humble before God, to obey Him. What are some things that we should give God control over? The first one, like I said, is ourselves. God should be in control of our decisions, our desires, our emotions, our bodies, our future, all things in life, and we give Him this. We, we say, God, I do not know what is right for me. Do and direct me in the direction that I should go. And even if God directs us in a direction that we do not prefer, God, I will submit to your guidance because this is what you are telling me. This is what you are saying is best for me, even if I myself don't agree with it. God is in control of our circumstances, that we should trust God as we are going through difficult trials and difficult challenges of things that are out of our control in our life. They say, God, I trust you that you are going to take care of this. This is, again, being humble. Because I'm humbling myself and saying, God, you are the one in control, not me. It is not I who can change these things. The third thing that we give God control over is other people. How many times, whether it be in relationships or with various people, that we wish that we could change somebody. We wish that we could change other people for the better, right? And we struggle and struggle and struggle in the end. We cannot, cannot change anyone for the better. God is the only one that can change the hearts. Right? So to be humble again means that I acknowledge and I tell God, God, you are the only one that can change my husband, my wife, my brother, my sister, my boss, my anyone. You are the only one that can change. And you're the only one that can give me justice from my enemies because I cannot bring justice on myself. Right? All of these attitudes are attitudes of humility. And in order for me to really work for this food that endures to eternal life, I must have a humble spirit because I'm operating by the rules of God. God is not operating by the rules of the world. We are the ones that should be operating by His rules. So I have to accept this. I have to say, God, this is what you said is necessary for salvation. This is what you said. I will follow your rules. I will follow your commandments because this is who you are and you are the one who has set out this for us. The fourth point is that we should labor for obedience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, For bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of, of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This godliness, right, and this life of obedience that God wants us to have is very important. We are to obey God even when we do not understand. And this is a very important point. Because in our society today, it's flipped. In our society, we seek to understand. And only when we understand and we are convinced that it is when we might decide to obey. But in, the, in God's terms and in God's way, this is not how it works. God tells the people, obey me, and maybe you'll eventually understand, but even if you don't understand, the obedience is better and more important than understanding. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, God gave the people all of these different feast days and fasting days and regulations and rituals and all of this. Did he ever explain why he did that? Did he ever tell the people, let me explain to you why there are five different types of sacrifices. Let me explain to you why that we are celebrating these feasts and this particular things. Actually, a lot of the things that the, the people were doing in the Old Testament were symbolic of things that were going to come to pass and to come to fruition in the New Testament. But the Old Testament people, they didn't understand any of this. God did not explain this to them. They just said, these are the, these are the laws. This is how you should practice. This is how you should obey. And those people who are righteous were the people that obeyed those laws even without understanding why is it they were obeying them. So this is an important principle for us to understand. 
There are times where God is directing us in certain ways and telling us to do certain things without us understanding. Actually, heaven itself is ununderstandable to us. You know, when we try to contemplate what does it mean to be somewhere for eternity? What does it mean to be somewhere forever, unendingly, without change, that it's going to be forever, without any end? How is it that I can understand this concept of eternal and forever? It's even beyond our understanding. All the things that God presents us is really ununderstandable, right? So in order for us to obey God, we should obey Him even before we understand. It is those people who are spiritual that go deep in their spiritual life, they can begin to understand what is it that God is actually saying, what is it God is teaching. But the first step is not understanding. The first step is obedience, and then understanding comes later. The last point that I want to mention to work for the food which endures to eternal life is the labor for love. In Hebrews chapter 6, says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That we believe that God sees every act that we do, and God is asking us to show love and kindness and mercy to one another. He's asking us to serve each other even when it is difficult for us to serve, and to believe that God sees any good work that we offer, and that he will, what? He will not forget it, that he will reward it that he is looking at us even as we are doing any work. He wants us to pursue a life of love for God and for other people. And it's very important for us to, to remember God as we serve one another. We serve one another as God served us. We, we serve one another in love because God is the one who served me and gave me more than I can ask or understand. And so we take some of this love that we received from God and we share it with others. So it's important for us to always be focusing on what are the, the things that God is asking us to do in this life to remember the next life. Because if I am only working and doing the things of this life, then I will only remember this life and be aware of this life. In order for me to be aware of the next life, the eternal life, I must do these eternal things here. I must do those things here so that I can be aware that that life actually exists. When I pray to God, when I serve others, when I am obedient to God, when I'm humble before God, all these things remind me that I'm only here temporarily and that I am a citizen of heaven and that I'm waiting for the time where I can fully kind of receive the kingdom as God has promised it to me. But while I'm here, until that time comes, I look forward to this day and I, and I live as much as I am able with the characteristics of heaven even while I'm on earth. This is why Christ said that we should labor for the food which endures for eternal life and not the food which only uh, uh, endures for this life. And this is why St. Simeon the Elder said that this uh, child, Christ, is going to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Those people who live according to this life will fall, and those people who live according to the eternal life will rise. So may God grant us that we labor for this food that endures forever, so that in the last day, when God sees what it is that we have built, he says, this is going to endure forever, and this is a heavenly house that you have made, and not an earthly one that will be destroyed. And glory be to God forever. Amen.